Hello, Zach. Hey, Jack, and welcome to the Just Hands Poker Podcast. Today we have a special episode. We have the one and only Dave Mills on the podcast. Welcome, Dave. Thank you very much. Um, you want me to start with the hand right away? Okay. So here's the hand I played. And by the way, I'm not a pro or anything like that. I'm, this is a, you know on the side for fun and student of the game. But I'm at um, Jack Cleveland Casino, the former horseshoe. One three game, the regular game there, uh, one hundred to three hundred buy in. Uh, it was this past Tuesday around like eight o'clock, and I get to the table. Um, I'm just in like a regular sweater and jeans, like no baseball cap, no headphones. That's sort of my like regular. Yeah. So uh, point is, you know, for the impression I'm creating for the table, kind of regular Joe coming in, not not like a poker pro or anything. Um, I'm assuming I look like a worse player maybe than I am, I hope. Uh, but anyway, I sit in like the three seat on the corner and, um, the hand I'll describe occurs only about 45 minutes into the session, but I'll give you a little more background on the table from my sense of it. Um, the short description is that it was kind of the typical limping game that we see at one three, but uh, the difference was it was a limping game with players who seemed to be more competent than the typical, like typical loose passive. You had people who seemed to be more regulars um, instead of like calling limp calling out of position, they would just fold. It, it seemed like what they were trying to do. A couple of them I recognized were just get into as many hands as they could. Probably before I got there, there was a lot of limping and, um, try to outplay people post-flop or, you know, really decent awareness of hand strength. So um, I'm not saying they're good, but they weren't just like terrible limping, like calling out of position. And um, so that gives you a feel for the table. Um, In terms of like my image, I wasn't limping at all. um, And not before long, I picked up like Jack's one hand and, um, you know, just bet over some limpers and then took it down with a C bet. I'll go through these real quick just to give you the impression. But I get a couple good hands in a short period of time, maybe three hands. I get king queen in the small blind um, and a, a somewhat looser guy opened and two people called and I made it like 55 and took it down in the small blind. So sort of a squeeze. Then maybe 10 minutes later, I'm on the button. I'm on the button with aces and I'm thinking, People are maybe going to start to get a little bit suspicious of me because I've gotten this frequency of hands. So I make it like 18 on the button with aces over, I think, two limps. Everybody folds. So I'm like, okay, um, I'm wondering what they're thinking of me because now I've had a pretty active uh, little few minutes here, which leads into the hand probably, I bet, within 10 minutes. Um, And the hand... um, there are multiple limpers, um, I think about five, and it comes to me. And again, a lot of these players are limp folding, especially when I'm sizing my bet over the limps up to like 20-something. I'm about 350 uh, deep, and um, I have ace of diamonds, six of spades in the small blind. Okay, so it comes around to me, and... Um, I decide to make it like 26. Um, and 
I don't know if you want me to stop there about that decision or continue. Uh, so, so one thing I just, even before we get to the hand, I would say that it's not that this, of course, I mean, I mean I think, of course, this is a beatable table, but I do think based on the description of the table, if, you know, if you're willing to, I think this is probably a good opportunity to table change just because, you know, we, you know, in these sorts of situations, we really want to be, I think, in at tables where bad players are putting in a lot of money, not decent players putting in very little money. So I think it just sounds like you could probably find a better table. There are definitely other reasons why you might not want a table change, uh, socially, and whatever. But yeah, I think that this is probably a good opportunity to change tables. Uh, but Zach, what do you think about uh, the actual squeeze spot? I mean, with the description, I think it can often be a perfectly fine spot to squeeze. It's just a question of, you know, how they're going to adjust to you. So based on what you were saying is even though you were fairly active in a short period of time, they didn't adjust. So then I would say you should squeeze a lot wider than you might normally, and then this is a good spot. Uh, So if you don't think there's been a significant change in how you've been perceived since the ace's hand in this, I think it's a great squeeze spot. Um and it sounds like a, a decent squeeze spot to me. Yeah, I think as far as a choice of hand for a squeeze, it's good. I mean, an ace blocker uh, will reduce the amount of hands that you know, these players are going to be happy to call you with. I will say that... So you've you've three bet twice so far? Um, I've, I think my only th- three bet was the king-queen squeeze. I was in small blind. I made it like 55 over um, uh, opening and two callers. And then the other hands, I was just uh, coming in over some limps. I think that if you think that these players are particularly position sensitive, uh, it might not be as good of a squeeze because I think, you know, making the same type of bet from the button, you know, a lot of players probably don't want to be head up out of position against you. Uh, and call a larger sizing. Uh, but I do think it's likely that if these are decent players, then they're going to be at least somewhat position aware. Uh, so I would be a lot happier to squeeze out of the button uh, against these types of players. And again, I think that it's probably a solid squeeze spot anyways. What happened next? And I was going to ask, what do you think of my sizing real quick? on the? I made it 26, and I kind of thought in hindsight, like because especially of my position... Making it a little bigger might make sense there. Making it like 30 is a number that becomes especially annoying for other players, and I don't mind getting all those folds. So I thought maybe in hindsight, like 30 or 31 is even better. I would say that if you think 30 will get folds, that 26 won't, then bet 30 because you want folds in this spot. I could see a case for 26 actually looking stronger than 30, but I would say just this is not the most scientific part of poker for us right now. So whatever you think is going to get the most folds, bet that sizing. With the one caveat that it should be in that like range, roughly, so, because there is some percentage of the time that like someone will decide to limp re-raise a monster, and then you know you have to fold. Okay, all right, that makes sense. Um, so what happens is, I so I make it twenty six, um, and I I haven't shown down a hand by the way, so this all goes into my image. Um, and um, there's a guy in seat like six, let's say. So I'm small blind. I think he's uh, under the gun plus one. And um, he had limped. And 
He, I don't know as much about this guy uh, as opposed to some of the other players. I don't know yet if I can put him in the category uh, of one of those decent players, as I described it, who uh, will limp and then play pretty well post-flop. I, I don't have a good feel for him. He's maybe like 30 years old, has a couple tattoos, um, you know, just that's the little bit of information I have, does seem to be limping uh, high frequency. So I'm I'm a little more inclined to think he's you know, passive. Um, and I don't have any indication. I think he's like very good post-flop or anything like that. So he's the one who calls. He kind of looks at me, makes the call. It feels to me like the guy with tattoos is sick of me and he's going to stand up to me, which I was kind of wondering if, if that's going to happen at this point. So I think that's an important live read to note because I don't think, I think this weights his range a lot more towards like non-pocket pair hands you know and i think this is an important part uh how like you know really ranging people start pre-flop and how live reads like this can really play an important role like if someone limps with pocket sevens they're not gonna like side call they're gonna be like probably call a little bit quicker and be like no you're not doing this to me where the side call is more indicative of a hand that they're normally gonna limp fold and now are choosing to limp call so i don't think you could you know say absolutely that he doesn't have any pocket pairs greater than like fives or something but i think you can definitely discount a lot of those combos from his range which will you know make a big difference uh on most runouts post flop Mm -hmm. yeah i would say that i mean i think any sort of read we should take with a grain of salt but i do think that if a player is sort of giving you a bit of a stare down trying to look stronger uh it's more likely that he has a weaker hand uh, and he's not at the top of his limping range, which I think for some players can get very strong. Uh, So yeah, I I definitely think it's a lot more likely that he has a hand like Jack-9 than a hand like Jack's with uh, that sort of physical action. Uh, Then again, I wouldn't rule anything out uh, for a player that we don't know very well at all. So yeah, let's proceed to the flop. Yeah, and I agree. I, I think at the time I wasn't as cognizant of what we're talking about now, but when I went back later to write it down, I, I even wrote down uh, yeah, probably not pocket pairs or medium pocket pairs because at least very often I see players like that kind of mindlessly throw in the additional amount to call. By the way, um, he's like his stack's maybe like 180. Okay. So, I, and I think with pocket pairs, like especially with my image and and, and starting to not have a lot of showdowns just being active. I think with a pocket pair there, he's going to do the mindless like Insta call probably. But um, anyway, I've also seen a lot of people. It seems like lately, like limping like ace queen and hands that strong. And as you say, Jack, like it's conceivable that someone like that is even limping hands that strong. Um, so anyway, we, uh, we get to the flop. Um, there's about 60 bucks in the pot, I think. And the flop, is monotone. Um, good monotone for me. It's all diamonds. I have the ace of diamonds. It's five. It's, um, let me make sure I've got this right. It's six, seven, eight, all diamonds, which is kind of interesting. Um, so actions on me, obviously I have the ace of diamonds and like six of spades. Um, I decide to check and I'm trying to think. My mindset at the time, I guess, was, all right, I I obviously am, am liking this flop with my Ace of Diamonds. 
my initial inclination when I have like the nut flush draw like that, just as a gut reaction is like, oh, I should bet. But then I was trying to think, is there, is there a reason maybe to just check here? Is it possible that I get into a bad spot if I bet? Do I need to be concerned about being blown off my hand for any reason here? Um, I was probably overestimating any concern about that. When I see that flop, I think of all the two pairs and I was probably putting too many sets into his range, contrary to what we said about the read, like, you know, six, sevens, eights, all the two pair, maybe straight, maybe stuff like that. And, you know, so in any event, I opted to check also thinking that, um, if the four flush comes out at some point and he has the diamond, of course, like, you know, we're going to be in great shape. So that was some of my thought process in the moment. So when you have the nut flush draw and you see bet, you will always, even if he shoves, you should always call. You're always going to have enough equity against that range. Uh, so I don't think you have to be worried about blowing off your hand. I think when you bet and he raises, uh, you're likely not a favorite, but you're still always going to be getting the pot odds to call. So the big question is here is how to maximize your fold equity because right now you have bottom pair. Um, so it's just a question of whether kind of maybe C betting large or even over betting would be the best way to fold out kind of hands with equity against you or even kind of marginal made hands or if check raising them will be best. And I could see a good case for both. I'm, I'm not particularly... Uh, drawn to a certain spot here like I, I can definitely see even if he's kind of pissed off with you and you have an active image if you check and he bets like a random seven or eight to protect his hand and you shove i could definitely see him folding and just deciding that looks really strong uh and that he only has you know maybe at that point like 150 140 doesn't want to lose it all uh especially if he like bet a diamond like that's a really great scenario for you like if he bets a lot of his diamonds uh that you know have pair outs against you uh, even if you're ahead right now and then fold that after already putting more money and that's a great scenario. So kind of talking it through, I think I'm inclined to go for a check raise here, uh, especially because you have this active image and um, have been betting a lot. The check kind of looks suspiciously strong. So then when you go all in, it looks, you know, even stronger. So I think based on everything you've said, that's going to be the best way to maximize your fold equity and sometimes even get them to put more money in the pot with greater fold equity. So if you think that's going to happen where he'll bet and then fold some, um, then it becomes a slam dunk uh, check raise shove. Yeah, I think this is a great spot for a check raise. Uh, I think when we bet here, we fold out a lot of very low equity hands against us. I think if, if you didn't have a pair, I'd be more thrilled about betting to just try and fold out uh, those hands that have decent equity against us, you know, like uh, your ace, well, I guess ace nine is, your your ace tens, ace jacks, that maybe this guy is someone who would limp, uh, those types of hands. Queen, I mean, hands that have decent equity but would probably fold to a continuation bet. Um, but since you have a pair, it's not as much of a disaster if this guy decides to check back. So I think going going for a check raise to try and get value from hands he's going to turn into bluffs is going to be a really great situation. I also think he's likely to make uh, some pretty a lot of mistakes against your exact hand. Uh, 
I think once you check raise him all in, he's likely to fold hands like a single pair, seven or eight, without. I mean, a lot of those will have some sort of draw as well. So probably a lot of those hands he'll call. But I think also a lot of the hands that he'd likely call you with would be a hand like uh, Jack 10 with a diamond or Jack 9 with a diamond. And those are hands that we'd like to see uh, call an all-in. So I think that just a lot of good things can happen when you check-raise. Uh, and since you have a pair, the pair is, it's, it's not super relevant here, uh, but it makes me a little bit more comfortable uh, getting to the turn. Well, I think it it is pretty relevant for the reasons you described. You know, it makes it so when he puts it in with a draw, we're just way ahead, you know? Right. Yeah, it makes... It has, it has implications for... Uh, when he does put in a bet, it doesn't have as many implications for when he checks behind, which is uh, what I, at first I was thinking that it did have more implications for when he checks behind, but I no longer think that. But I do think it makes the check raise a lot stronger just because we're doing really well against his draws. Uh, so, yeah, I like check raising here. Okay. I, I agree with that. It makes sense. Um, so, anyway, like I said, I, I checked, um, and uh, he checked um, behind which I guess is somewhat surprising. But anyway, we get to the turn, and again, the flop was six, what I say? Uh, six, seven, eight of diamonds. Turn is a five of diamonds. So it's five, six, seven, eight, all diamonds. Um, hit the nut flush on the turn. Um, I didn't bring this hand in as a brag. Um, but, you know, so it's, Again, interesting board and interesting, I think, with the dynamic of how this guy is maybe perceiving me as like the sort of irritating guy who just seems to be like betting with a high frequency. So now I'm obviously I got to get money in the pot is my mentality. Um, And I think the pot's about $60. And I think I bet um, right around 30. Um, I don't want to, you know, fold out things that are he's tempted to get a little crazy with or like maybe like a really bad flush that he's hit um i suppose he wouldn't fold those but that was my mentality like uh i'm trying to think how much he has left at this point it's not like a huge amount so i figure if i can get this bet in it may set up you know a good spot for me on the river so i definitely think you know you should be thinking about how can i get my stack in by the river and what's the best way to do that against his range? When you bet 30 here, uh, if he calls, he's going to have, what, about like 120 left? Uh, so then the, yeah, so you'll have a little more than a pot size bet left on the river. Honestly, what I'm thinking when this card comes out, given your image, I'm thinking a shove here is best to try to value target flushes, curious flushes. I think when you bet 30, you're always going to get called by uh, almost any flush that he has. Um, And I think given your image, um, you're really just trying to get the most money from like 10 of diamonds, jack of diamonds, like queen and king, you'll likely get the whole second no matter what. But like, how do you get max value against those hands? Well, betting 30 or 40 on the turn and shoving the river looks like pretty damn strong. Uh, And I think you'll actually more likely get a call from the 10 of diamonds just open shoving the turn than you will from like 
betting, you know, two thirds to three quarters pot on the turn and then shoving the river. I actually, I kind of like the idea of checking the turn because I, and let me explain. I do like uh, an all-in bet better than a bet of 30, but I think that it might be better to just wait till the river to do that. If we check, then I think we give them an opportunity to bluff with hands that uh, obviously you wouldn't call any bet with, uh, which would be a great outcome for us. Uh, and then we could decide whether we wanted to check raise all in or check call and try and uh, induce another bluff or check call and then ship on the river. I think if it goes check, check, uh, based on what how we're ranging this player, there's not really any terrible card on the river. Of course, he could check back some sort of two-pair hand and you know end up with a full house, which would suck, but there's nothing we can really do about that. And I think we should really... It's just not going to be a significant enough occasion to factor into our decision-making or that it'll affect our decision-making. So I think maybe checking here to try and induce a bluff, if it checks through shipping the river on any card, uh, and then evaluating, or obviously we'll evaluate it here right now if we think that's the best line, but evaluating what to do if he does bluff, uh, that sounds best to me. Yeah, I think this depends on what we think this villain's bluffing frequency is. If we're saying that when we check the flop and check the turn, he's going to barrel, you know, close to all of his range that is, like, worse than a medium value hand there, then, yeah, then turning all your flushes into bluff catchers is going to be the most profitable. But I don't think this villain, we have any evidence to think that this person's going to bluff against us. I think, uh, you know, besides the fact that we haven't observed any other hands, like, just the fact that the villain checked back the flop I think kind of shows like someone who would be bluff the turn in this spot, I think would be more likely to bluff the flop in this spot. So then it's just a question of if we check here, what looks stronger check calling and shoving the river or check raising. And I think open shipping looks way weaker than both of those options. Uh, I, I just don't agree with you. I think it's not unreasonable to think that someone you know, with just a hand with sort of zero equity would not want to bluff the flop. And then when it gets checked him again on the turn and the fourth diamonds come, think that we're unlikely to have a flush uh, and bluff at that point. I don't think that's unlikely at all, especially the player is described. I know we haven't seen any aggression, but we've also only been playing with him for about 45 minutes and he's in his thirties with tattoos. I'm just definitely not going to say that he wouldn't bluff the turn. Also, I think having him bet here uh, is just likely to be a good outcome for us either way. I think if he bets out a king high flush for value uh, and then we ship, it's pretty unlikely he's going to fold. I don't think that looks so much stronger or necessarily stronger at all in a way that I think he's going to bet fold a lot of flushes in this spot. And I think that shipping on the river might look weaker, might look stronger, but I don't think it looks very different than shipping on the turn. Uh, so I, for that reason, I think just giving him the opportunity to bluff is the most important part of this decision. So yeah, I, I stand by that. I like to check here, but 
What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely bluffs in this person's range, but I think the amount of bluffs uh, that this person will need to be making to make that play more profitable isn't there. And again, I think we'd have to do the math on this and like make some assumptions about his bluffing frequency to see uh, which line is best. But like my instinctual reaction is that making reasonable assumptions about what this villain's bluffing frequency is and making assumptions that check raising the turn uh, or check calling and or checking and check back and open shipping the river that to me will look a lot stronger and we're really we're trying to value target not the king of diamonds we're always going to get our stacking as the king of diamonds uh, we're trying to value target the nine of diamonds the ten of diamonds jack of diamonds here so what's the best way to get value from that hand and I think open shipping the turn is vastly superior I think check raising looks a lot stronger and checking the flop checking the turn and shipping the river looks a lot stronger in my opinion, is going to get a lot more folds from those hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't agree with you, but I think given your assumptions, I definitely like shipping the turn, and given my assumptions, I definitely like checking the turn. So, so Dave, you said you bet uh, 30 on the turn? Okay, uh, so what happened? So I bet, I bet 30 on the turn. I'm doing whatever I can to be looking somewhat weak about it is my mentality. However, he perceives that, um, you know, I, uh, that's why I bet a little small, et cetera. He, he, uh, calls. So at that point, my mentality is that he's in the non-believer mode. I've been active and I'm on this scariest board ever and I'm just betting, but I'm not really putting in a lot of chips that that's my perception. So I'm like, well, all right, I'll set up something on the river here. Um, and so we go to the river. Again, it's like five, six, seven, eight diamonds, five, six, seven, eight, nine diamonds. And then the river is, um, did I say that right? Wait, what was the river? And the river's an ace. I was I was just giving the board, yeah. The river's like an ace, um, maybe ace of uh, spades or something like that. So I... At this point, and I think it shows a mistake in my line, is that I don't think I can get my stack in at this point because I feel like he is bluff catching me, um, which, again, I think is a mistake in my line because I should be able to get my stack in here. So what I do is, uh, again, now I'm like just trying to get a call is my mentality. He's hanging on. He doesn't believe me. I'm going to bet again. And uh, I bet something like 55 um, for all those reasons and wait and try to look a little bit you know, meek, don't look at him, et cetera. Um, he tanks. I'm not looking at him. I'm not observing him. Uh, I'm just staring at the, like the pot and he shoves, he ships over the top for like maybe as 110 or 120. Um, and I look up for half a second. I'm thinking there's two straight flushes out there, but it's, you know, insta call. And, um, you know, I, so I snap call and uh, he had like queen six of clubs, queen clubs, six of clubs uh, for just a spaz out river bluff, which I think is pretty unusual play um, at these stakes. Um, and the only other thought I had for you guys, if you want to get into it, is I, I was trying to think later, like, I wonder if his play at the end, if he's like really deep or deeper is is a good play against my range. Um, that may be another podcast, but 
I was telling someone about the hand later, and I, th- I, I was like, wow, I got this stack because he shipped into my nut flush, and you didn't really have anything. But I thought, you don't see that a lot at those stakes. And I thought it might have been, if he was maybe deeper, let's say he was able to make it 200 on the river there um, against my range. Forget my hand. But is it maybe not the worst play on his part? But that that may be episode two. Well, there's there's a lot to talk about there. The first thing I think is the bet of 55. I really like the bet. I think as played, you want to value target kind of all of his marginal hands. Like this isn't a case where you're trying to get max value from like a strong part of his range. Like his whole range is weak here. So you just want to get calls a high percent of the time from that generally weak range. And I think a bet of 55 is like when, when I heard you, you know, kind of set up the river, I'm like, okay, 55 sounds about right. So, uh yeah, but do you, Jack, what do you think about that that bet? Uh, I like the bet. I like that you weren't. I mean, you acknowledged the presence of the straight flushes, but then you know realized that you you had to call for that price. Uh, you know, that's. I I think some people have a tendency to get scared of the best possible hand out there, and might you know convince themselves to make a hero fold here, uh, which I think is a bad play. So I, I just. Yeah, I like the line on the river. Uh, I think, of course, if you guys were very deep, maybe not for $200, uh, but if you were very deep, he could put you in a tough spot here, uh, holding the nut flush or, you know, with your entire range, which I think is a lot of nut flushes and maybe some king high flushes and not a ton of worse hands. And also some straight flushes, I think. Uh, he can put you in a tough spot with your non-straight flush hands, your king high flushes. But I think that a player, once once you feel like, if you know a player well enough to know that he would bluff in that spot, then you still are just sort of for, indifferent to calling again, or calling or folding, and probably just make a crying call. And sometimes they have a straight flush, sometimes they don't. Uh, but that just sort of becomes player dependent. But for sure, he could put you in a tough spot. I do think we we didn't, I don't want to go back to the turn for too long. But I think one thing to point out is that the fact that there was there is a straight flush on the board. Uh, there's basically four flushes we're really targeting for value. You know, 10-jack, queen-king. Uh, I think the king-high flush, maybe the queen-high flush, we're never worried about not getting the money in. So that's almost sort of two flushes that we're not sure if we'll be able to get the money in, depending on our line, versus all of the random garbage hands that they might bluff, which definitely makes me think that checking to induce a bluff is a better line on the turn. Uh, but I'll, I'd like to hear your response, but I don't want to you know, drag this on. I mean, I think I like stand by what I said. I think given the information I had at the time, thinking that this player can have a hand like queen six of clubs, let alone play it the way he did, I think is so improbable that I like wouldn't change how I played the turn. I think in retrospect, you know, we would take a very different line against this player and obviously checking to induce plus from this, this part of their range makes sense. I just don't think this, the, their bluff, an average player's bluffing frequencies, given the information we had, is going to be high enough to make that the correct play. I'm surprised you th- you think that. Well, I'm, one, I'm surprised you think that it's so improbable that this guy's bluffing. 
But also, I think the thing to point out here is that, so so when we're talking about the combinations that involve a 10 of diamonds and a jack of diamonds versus all of the air, you know, I think if we, if we say, okay, I think this guy bluffs his air, or I think 30% of the time, this is a guy who bluffs air in this spot, then it, it becomes a clear check. Uh, and I, I'm totally comfortable saying that 30% of the time, this is a guy who bluffs air in this spot. I think that's very conservative, honestly. So I'm, I'm feeling pretty strongly about my line, but maybe we can do some math away from the table uh, or just leave it up as a disagreement. Well, yeah, I think it would be interesting to find, like, what is the frequency that the player would have to bluff with their air um, for the check to be profitable. I think that does interest me a lot. Um, and, yeah, I still think, given the information I had, it's going to be lower than 30%. I think especially at a 1-3 game, like, if it's a monotone wet board at 6-7-8 of diamonds, and then this really active guy checks to you on the flop and you have a garbage hand, uh, I think the type of player that is comfortable betting with no equity is going to do it on the flop the vast, vast majority of the time. All right. Well, thank you so much for bringing on the hand, Dave. If you have any other thoughts, we'd love to hear them. Or uh, if not, then just thank you again for coming on. No, just thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Of course. All right. We'll see you next time. Hi, all. Jack here. Thank you guys all for tuning in to our 30th episode. I think I speak for both Zach and I uh, in saying thank you so much. Uh, for being a listener. It's been really exciting and gratifying to see uh, the number of people tuning in grow every week. Uh, and we're really looking forward to you know, continuing to try and provide uh, information about this specific topic of live, low-stakes, no-limit hold'em, which we think, even though it's one of the most popular forms of poker in America and across the globe, is somewhat underserved with you know, high-level content. I know you guys appreciate that information, and we're going to do our best to keep providing it. Speaking of those opportunities, uh, we're starting to hear more and more interest about our potential uh, live event with Greg Raymer. For more information about that, uh, please visit our website, justhandspoker.com. Uh, as always, you can head to the website to look for uh, new blog posts uh, and other great information. Zach and I have both been traveling, so the blog has not received a ton of love in the past few weeks, uh, but as a follow-up to this episode, I plan to do some mathematical analysis of the hand we discussed, uh, and that'll show up on the blog over the weekend. All right. Thanks again so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.